We will continue our study through Mark chapter 4, and uh, through, through the Gospel of Mark, and this week we will again find ourselves in Mark chapter 4, and uh, a very familiar, familiar uh, account, and one with incredible lessons for us all. We want to turn your, past, turn your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 4, and I'd like to begin reading at verse 35. And here Mark writes, And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I moved to the floor this morning for just a few minutes because I'd like to demonstrate something here. Uh, In 1986, uh, there was a drought in Israel. The water levels of the Sea of Galilee dropped dramatically, and some fishermen discovered something quite unexpected. They discovered the remains of a fishing boat. It turned out to be a first-century Galilean fishing boat preserved in the wood, and I'm sorry, in the mud, even though it's made of wood, 2,000 years old. Through careful excavation and, and amazing, it's a fascinating study, how they were able to resurrect this very fragile, brittle, not brittle, it was just like, it was like mush, but the structure was still there, and they could remove the mud from around it and, and excavate this thing and lift it up out of the, out of the, the bottom of the sea. And, and what they discovered was quite surprising. It's actually what we expected, but we never had any evidence of it, that this boat, this first century fishing boat, dimensionally was seven feet wide. Now, the reason I'm down here is because the distance from the front of this pew to, to this wall right here is exactly seven feet. Um, it was seven feet wide. It rose about four, four and a half feet high. The top of it was rotted off, so we're guessing how high it actually was. Uh, but in length then, it was 27 feet long. 27 feet actually is the distance from, from this door to the electric piano over there. And so if you could somehow bring a first century Galilean fishing boat into the sanctuary, it would nestle in very tightly and snugly right in this space. It's surprisingly rather small. Uh, They were were, uh, controlled either by oar, you could row them, they had oar locks on the the sides, or they were also fitted with sails, with one one sail in the middle, they were uh, controlled with a rudder, and uh, most people, as when I saw this this boat in a museum, I was I was shocked, and I said that is really really tiny. 
It was a boat such as this that our Lord found himself in during the entirety of Mark chapter 4. If you go back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, the very beginning in Mark chapter 1 verse 1, we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark's goal throughout this gospel is to reveal Jesus Christ as the God-man, as the Messiah. Pastor Brad has been describing him as the unexpected Messiah. And truly, he he was. He was not at all what we thought he would look like. We see here in this section of Mark 4, though, a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of both the humanity of our Lord and also a startling reminder and terrifying reminder, in fact, of his divine nature. The chapter concludes, as I just read in verse 41, with the disciples saying, what manner of man is this? And I would like to tell you what manner of man he was. The disciples were slowly figuring it out. In John 1, 1, John tells us that the word was God. And all things came into being by him. And without him, nothing has come into being. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews, though unknown, he says, through whom, that is Jesus, also he made the world. In verse 3, he goes further, he not only created the world, but it says, and he upholds all things through his power. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read, by him all things were created, both visible and invisible, And by him, that is Jesus Christ, all things consist, or they hold together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, There is one God and one Lord Jesus, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. The Creator in Genesis 1 1 was indeed God, and specifically, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. And he not only created once, he is not, as the deist said, believed some like a divine clockmaker who made his creation and then stood back and just watches it. He is, in fact, actively involved day by day, not just in our lives, but he is actively sustaining and holding his creation together. Jesus is the creator of everything. And we, see, we will see today, in today's account, that creation simply must obey the voice of its creator and its sustainer. Now, so far in this Gospel of Mark, we have seen men obey the voice of their creator when when he called his disciples to follow him. He walked in the shore of the Galilee and, and he called out to men and said, follow me. And what did they do? They followed him. Uh, They obeyed. We have seen demons and fallen angels obey the voice of their creator as he cast out unclean spirits from the man in the Capernaum synagogue. We have seen disease obey the voice of their creator when Simon's mother-in-law was healed of a deadly fever simply with the touch of the creator's hand. We saw the human body respond to the voice of the Uh, to the voice of the creator when he commanded the paralyzed man to what? Stand up and walk. And then not only did he he, he did not not stop there with the human body obeying, but we saw that the creator also has authority over sin. 
when he declared this man to be forgiven. We see that he has creator, he has authority over the teachers of the law. And he now, in this chapter, is going to demonstrate his authority over inanimate objects. Objects he also created. He has authority over the wind and the sea. All of these miracles that he had been doing had created quite a following, quite a stir. If you look at verse 36, as we, in this passage we read today, it says, And leaving the crowd behind, they left in the boat. The, the day had begun with Jesus' teaching. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, you'll see it says that, And he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very great multitude gathered around him. Uh, Jesus' ministry headquarters, if you will, was a little village called Capernaum. It was, that was his headquarters during the early years of his ministry. It made sense because it was, in fact, his hometown. The name Capernaum means, is, is Kafar Nahum. Kafar means the village of. Nahum is, is a man named Nahum. Uh, we do not know anything about Nahum, but we, don't, we know that he is not the, Nahum, the, the prophet of the Old Testament. He is apparently some other man of influence. Maybe he was the first to settle there. Uh, but he, Jesus lived in Capernaum. It is one of the larger of several small fishing villages which, which line the shores of the Galilee. It was also the home of Simon Peter. It was the home of Andrew, the home of James, and the home of John. Now, later in his ministry, Jesus would, would fix his eyes on Jerusalem. And it was Jerusalem, of course, being the largest and the capital city of, of Israel. It was a city in which the temple was located, the center of religious worship. But for now, our Lord focuses his attention on Capernaum. And he begins teaching, as he begins teaching by the seaside, crowds form, as happened frequently, not just to hear his teaching, but also to, to see a show, to see miracles. Crowds have been the norm since the beginning of, since the very first chapter of Mark. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, you'll see in verse 22 that he's teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And it says, and the people were amazed at his teaching in Mark 21, 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as the teachers of the law. And it says that the news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. By verse 33 of chapter 1, Jesus is in a house. And it says, and the whole town, and if you read this, I do not believe this is hyperbole. It says the whole town gathered at the door. (laughs) Verse 45 of chapter 1, we read that as a result of Jesus healing a man with leprosy, Jesus cannot even anymore enter towns and villages because of the crowds that gather around him. But instead, it says he has to remain in open places simply to accommodate the people that want to be around him. One of these open places that he found was effective at meeting people was the seashore. The northwest shore of the Galilee, where Capernaum is located, is ideal for this. It's covered in in low, lush green grasses. There's a gentle slope upward from the shoreline to the hills around the Galilee. It forms a natural theater. I have stood on the hillside here and 
spoken, if you turn and you face up the hill from the sea and you speak in a normal, natural voice, it's incredible the distance that your voice travels. It, the, the train itself actually forms a very natural theater. And it's on, on this particular day of teaching, Mark says that as Jesus stood there by the seashore, that the crowds just kept pushing in on him. You know how when people push in on you, you might take a step back and you ever talk to somebody, you take a step back to create a little more space and they take another step forward. And, and I, I picture that's probably what happened here. He took a step back and the crowds came forward. He took a step back and they took a step forward. And before he knew it, his feet were getting wet. And, and so he, he steps into a boat that he finds nearby and he pushes out into the lake and he begins to teach them from the boat. It was logical. You know, sound travels well across water. Maybe the boat was owned by Peter, James, or John, one of these professional fishermen who, who uh, fished right here. This was their hometown, and they lived nearby. And he taught the people from the water. And as he taught, people began to gather on the sloping shoreline around the lake. The, the Sea of Galilee itself is very unique. It, it's not an actual sea at all, actually. It's, it's actually a large freshwater lake. It goes by many different names. You'll see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and the New Testament on the maps and things, you'll see it go by names like Lake Ginnasar, uh, Lake Gennesaret, Lake Tiberias, uh, Lake Kinneret, as it's known today. We know it best as the Galilee. It is the lowest freshwater lake on the face of the earth. Uh, interestingly, it, it sits 700 feet below sea level. And don't get bored in all these details. You'll, you'll see how they come together later. It sits 700 feet below sea level. It's second only in elevation to the Dead Sea, which is not a freshwater lake at all. It's actually a, a very, very rich in mineral content, um, high level of concentration. And only the Dead Sea, which the Galilee feeds, is lower. It is 8 miles wide. It is 13 miles in length. And its depth is around 150 feet. It's supplied by the Jordan River, which, which flows out of the snow-capped peaks of, of Mount Hermon, which is way in the far northern reaches of, of Israel, actually in territory which is owned by both Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. And, and as the snow melts off Mount Hermon, it flows down through the Jordan River and empties into the Sea of Galilee. There's also a an abundance of natural springs under the sea. And one of the neat features about the Galilee being so deep as below sea level is that that depth like that allows the atmosphere to filter out a lot of the sun's ultraviolet rays. Uh, only, the sea of, only the Dead Sea is deeper. In the Dead Sea, interestingly, you may find this fascinating, you, you cannot get sunburned. Uh, you, you can be the most fair-skinned person ever and walk around because the, the UV rays simply do not penetrate that deep into the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, it's not quite that way at the Galilee, but, but close. And, and as the, the depth, as it filters out the UV rays, it promotes something which I don't understand. I'm not a biologist, but plankton love to grow in the Galilee, and plankton feed fish and and fish feed people and so it's it's a just an ideal situation it's a veritable nursery for fish and aquatic life fishing there is excellent some of the best fishing in the world and that has always proven to be a real benefit to the people living in israel the lake has some other unique features it is surrounded by mountains on on three sides on the east there's the golan heights 
The Golan Heights are an incredible mountain range. They rise to an elevation of about 3,000 feet. To the uh, west and the northwest, the mountains rise dramatically to about 1,500 feet in elevation. And, and that geological formation creates some very interesting weather patterns. In the summer months, what happens is every evening as the sun sets, the cool air rushes down from Mount Hermon and, and descends down to the lake as cool, weather, cool air does. And as it goes from 3,000 feet above sea level to 700 feet below sea level, it, it creates good gusts of wind and it stirs up the sea and can, can create some pretty good waves and, and foam on the, on the sea. But here's the thing. The Golan descends gradually and it happens regularly every single day at evening. Any fisherman, anyone who lives by the seas knows this is what happens. Now, the winter months, however, become a little bit more interesting. Uh, and in the winter months, you get wind gusts from the west. And as the wind gusts across the west, the winter storms form over the Mediterranean Sea, and it, it has to travel only 30 miles across land before it reaches the cliffs of our bell and drops suddenly. The cliffs of our bell are, are steep rock cliffs. And the wind drops suddenly down these cliffs, dropping over 1,300 feet in elevation. As it does so, it mixes with this cold winter air, mixes with the warm air that's, that's laying over the sea, caught in this basin. And it's known to whip up storms at a moment, creating wind and gusts and, and waves up to 12 feet high. 12 feet high. Remember that little boat? I've sailed from Tiberias on the, on the Sea of Galilee to the north, north shore, Kibbutz uh, Ginnasar, on, on a large steel diesel-powered boat. And even on that vessel, I was told that a winter storm like can whip up at a moment's notice. If one of those happened while we were there, they said, we will have trouble getting this boat to shore. And that's a large diesel-powered vessel. Our, own, our best estimates place this event somewhere in the winter of the year 29 AD. And it was the perfect place, perfect place for our Lord to display his power and to teach a very valuable lesson. If you look at verse 35, Mark says, On that day... On that day, remember he started out teaching in the boat, and it says, on that day when evening had come, he had taught them all day long. It's evening, he knows the crowds are going to continue to follow him if he steps back on the shore and tries to get home to Capernaum. And so what does he say? Let's, let's go to the other side. I, I, the language indicates he doesn't want to push through the crowds. He's tired. He, he doesn't want to return to the shore. And leaving the crowd, it says, they took him along with them just as he was. That's an interesting phrase. Just as he was in the boat. He didn't go home to change clothes. He didn't go home and get a nap and rest his feet. They had been in boats, and just as they had been in boats as he taught, they took the same boat that he had been teaching from, and they sailed across the ocean. I think it's further, the sea. It's further indication, I think, that perhaps this boat may have belonged to one of the disciples. I Maybe, I, in my imagination, on the side of the boat, it has emblazoned Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company. I, I, don't, I don't really know. 
But the text says that there were other boats with him. And Luke's account of this same event, we're in Mark now, but Luke's account says that they were sailing. Luke is very precise in his word choice. And Luke says they were sailing. It's a very different word. They could have rowed these boats, as I said, but they were also fitted with sails. And it's, Luke says, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. About three years ago, the boys and I took a uh, deep sea fishing trip. Our goal was to go to the Gulf Stream about 25 miles off the shore of off the Carolina coast. And there were some terrible storms the night before. And the waters were rough. Now, we happened to know the first mate of this fishing boat personally. And he told us, he said, the captain will want to go on this fishing trip because this is how he makes his money. He says, but you have the right to say, no, this is too rough. And I looked at him. I said, I'm from the hills of Pennsylvania. I don't know. And we we worked out. He said, well, we'll meet in the morning. He says, and, and we worked out a code. Obviously, he worked for the captain. He didn't want to, you know. And he said, if I say this, that means it's rough. Pass. Don't go out. If I say this, it means it's going to be okay. You know, take a chance. Let's go. Well, we went there at 6 o'clock in the morning on the dock and and as we stood around and talked and discussed it, I'm looking and waiting for the password. You know, the words, what's the code? And it doesn't come. And where's the, did I miss it? Was there a good code? I'm, and finally, he comes over to me. He says, I don't know. It's, it's really borderline. And so, you know, what do you do? We took a chance and we went out in the boat. And I'm telling you what, we, we left that morning and we faced waves like you see on the movies. You know the movies where the boat rolls over on its side and everyone falls overboard and dies? Just like that. Um, it, it was rough. Uh, we loaded up with Dramamine and every motion sickness medication that you can possibly think of that we could get our hands on until before you know it, we were, we were all asleep. That's saying something because we were asleep on couches and cushions and things that when the boat would go this side, they would all rush to that side of the boat and then they would go to that side and they'd go front and back. We were, and we were so drugged up with <laughs> that we fell asleep. You know what? That is not the reason Jesus was sleeping here. We see here a perfect picture of his humanity. He had taught all day. It's evening when they left the shore. It's dark now for sure. And you picture this. Picture a cool breeze. You picture a gentle rocking of the boat. You picture the flutter. You hear the flutter of the sail, the the soft words of familiar voices. I love to fall asleep in the middle of the living room and take a nap when all the little kids are chattering away and you hear calm, quiet voices. It's just peaceful sleep to me. It's when they're quiet that you have to be afraid. And... And Jesus is, it says in verse 38, he's in the stern or the back of the boat. He's asleep on the cushion. The word cushion denotes uh, something for the neck if, if in, in Greek. It's apparently some kind of pillow that was kept there for just occasions such as this. Fishing in the Galilee was always done at night. And so it makes sense that you would have provisions for somebody who's tired to, to lay down and take a nap. But, you know, it's a vivid reminder that our Lord is fully man. 
He's 100% human. Galatians 4.4 tells us that, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet as we are, just as we are, yet without sin. We have a beautiful picture of a very human Jesus, and he's tired, and he's sleeping to the sound of the waves and the wind, and perhaps frogs, and all sounds of the night, things that he himself created. And then we get to verse 38. Verse 37, I'm sorry. And it says, And there arose a fierce gale of wind. Pastor Brad has talked about Mark's use of action words, his employment of action words, like straightway and immediately. And here, Mark employs another word that denotes a lot of action and excitement. We call it the historic present. It's not necessarily a word, but it's a verb tense. It's called the historic present. And if you're a deer hunter, you understand. I'll give you an example. Yeah, I was sitting in the tree stand. It was cold. <laughs> the wind was blowing. I hadn't seen a thing. I saw a fox run under the tree stand at one day, but one time, but that was it. I saw a doe off at a distance, and that was pretty much it for the morning and until I heard this twig snap to my right. I turned my head and I lock eyes with the biggest buck I have ever seen in my life. He stares at me. I stare at him. Each one of us is afraid to move. I was afraid to breathe. And suddenly, I am so relieved because he lowers his head, he turns, he begins to walk away, and I raise the rifle. Did you catch what I did? I began telling the story in the past tense. And then, when the buck steps into view, I jumped to the present tense and I began to tell the story as though I was right there reliving it all over again. Pay attention. When people get really excited about something they're telling you, they will do it. Mark does that very thing right here. And it says, he says, and there arises a fierce gale of wind. And he continues in that present tense, even though he's relaying a past historic event, he continues in the, in the present tense, the historic present for the rest of the chapter. It's a fierce gale, Mark says. Luke, the doctor, doctor and historian, always wanted to use these very precise words. He says that it descended on the lake. Remember the geography that I described to you earlier? That's exactly what it did. The storm descended. It rushed down the cliffs of Arbel. And it's very descript language. Matthew calls it a great storm. Literally, I like the, the Greek language here, literally a seismos megos. Seismos, like you picture, we get seismic. It's a picture of a, an earthquake. And mega, it's a big one. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand that. That a seismos megos has got to be something pretty big. Um, and remember the size of this boat? I'm telling you, it's not even twice the size of my canoe. Okay? 
and is now facing perhaps 12-foot waves. Matthew says that the waves are over the boat. Luke comments that the boat was swamped. Mark here says that it's filling up. And Jesus, somehow not loaded up with Dramamine, is sound asleep. We get a picture again of complete fatigue, total humanity. And his disciples' next words, I believe, give insight into the lesson we're going to, we have to learn from this today. And they look at him and they wake him and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? On that fishing trip with my boys, we were not the only passengers who were sick. Um, of the six other people on that boat that day, every other one was a captain or a first mate of some fishing vessel somewhere. Every other person in that boat, besides the Clark family, made their living on the water. And to my comfort, I guess you could say, they were all sick too. (laughs) Every one of them was vomiting over the side of the boat as well. And it proved to me that this was indeed uh, rough seas. This wasn't just this landlubber who doesn't know how to, you know, keep it together. In the same way, these were professional fishermen, most of them, who were with Jesus. And they were terrified. And they woke the sleeping master and they said, Do you not care? Do you know the story? Verse 39 says, And being aroused, he, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Creation obeyed the voice of its creator. And here we get to see the God-ordained purpose of this whole event. After his rebuke of the wind, he turns and he locks eyes with these disciples, these terrified sailors, and he rebukes them. He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still, how is it that you still have no faith? You know, you might have expected them to turn and hug them. Instead, there's a rebuke. Now, I do not believe that Jesus was telling them, oh, if you had had more faith, you could have told the sea to calm down. I don't think that's what he was saying at all. I believe his rebuke was directed at their earlier supposition when they said, Master, do you not care? You know, it's easy to look at our surroundings and see the troubles and the dangers all around us and to become terrified and conclude that apparently God just doesn't care about the situation that I'm in. You know, the scriptures tell us that at least seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen by trade. Matthew was a tax collector. We know what he did. Obviously, that's not a fisherman. And, and the, remainder, the remaining disciples, we don't have any idea what they did for a living. But we know that at a minimum, seven were fishermen. And we know that they all lived by the sea. They all lived by the Galilee, giving them at least a familiarity with it. I think it's safe for us to assume that when this storm kicked up, they had done everything that a sailor should do to keep the ship afloat. They had probably already dropped the sail, lightened the load. They were rowing and steering and bailing as fast as they could, as best as they knew. They they earned their living on this water. They know how to handle these types of events. They had done all they can do except for one thing. They had forgotten to trust. I'd like to show you a diagram, uh, if I could, in the PowerPoint here. This diagram comes from... Uh, Paul Tripp's book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. It's a circle, and we call it the circle of responsibility. 
within the circle of responsibility, if you go to the next, Jake, um, the circle of responsibility contains that which God has called me to do. These are things that I can't pass on to somebody else. I can't say, oh, you take care of this for me. They are things which only I can do. I cannot pass off to anybody else. And my proper response within the circle of responsibility is to faithfully obey. These men had done all that they could do. They fulfilled their responsibility as sailors. But, you know, outside of the circle of responsibility, if we go to the next one, Jake, is what we call the circle of concern. These are things which are, they concern me because they affect me. But they're outside of my control. Next slide, Jake. They're outside of my control. And therefore, being outside of my control, they are not my responsibility. Do they affect me? Yes. But what is my responsibility here? In these matters, I must trust. Did this seismos mega storm affect them? Of course it did. Was this storm within their control? Guys? No. Had they fulfilled their responsibility? Had they done all that they could do? Yes. So the proper response for which Jesus rebukes them was to trust. He rebukes them. Even in their fear, he rebukes them. He says, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Friends, only you can go to work for you. Only you can go to your class at school. God has called you there. You cannot shirk it off on somebody else. Only you can fulfill your responsibilities as husband, as wife, as father, as, as mother, as daughter or son. Only you can eat right. Only you can care for your body. I can't do those things for you. Your responsibility in those areas is to obey. But outside of those things, there are so many areas of concern. Will the plant stay open long enough for me to retire? Will, will my child succeed in life? Will my health improve? These things affect us. But they concern us, but we're powerless to have any impact on them any more than the disciples could stop the storm. And it's tempting to think at times like that that God just must not care. But in those areas, you and I are called to trust a loving creator. And we're about to see why we can trust him in this passage. Verse 39 says, And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Hush, be still, and instantaneously his creation obeyed his will. Remember that seismos megos, that huge shaking? Mark uses a very similar word here, and he says it became perfectly calm. The word here is megalei. There is a huge calmness. It's interesting. Not only does the wind stop, but the waves stop. There's no ripples. There's no splashes. There is a perfect supernatural calm. And the disciples' reaction is absolutely priceless. And it also gives us reason to consider this even more. 
As the storm rages, they are afraid. Jesus calms the storm, and look what happens in verse 41. And they became very much afraid. The play on words here is fantastic. We saw a mega storm, and then we saw a mega calm, and now the disciples' fear during the storm turns into, you guessed it, the word here is mega fear. Why? What's worse than having a storm outside your boat is having the living God inside your boat. They were finally coming to terms with just who this man was. Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a very normal reaction, I believe, to seeing who God is. We see it over and over in Scripture. Isaiah saw God and said, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. The Israelites gathered around Mount Sinai as Moses was receiving the law from God. And the Israelites said to Moses, please let God not speak to us anymore. You be the go-between. If he continues to speak to us, we will die. Solomon, in all his wisdom, said in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this chapter ends with a question. The question that is asked here is, Who then is this man, or what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a rhetorical question. It's posed by Matthew, it's posed by Mark, it's posed by Luke, and interestingly, in all three accounts, not one time is there an answer given. No answer is needed. Only one answer is possible. This human Jesus, tired after a long day, is also, without any doubt, fully divine. His creation has no choice but to obey his word. Do you know what? As we operate in, affected in this circle of concern, friends, you can trust him. He cares, even when it seems like he's being silent. He cares. And our proper response is to trust. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.